please stand for the reading of God's word. Our sermon today is from Psalm 129 once again. These are God's words. A song of ascent. Many times they have assailed me from my youth up. Let Israel now say, many times they have assailed me from my youth up. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plow is plowed upon my back. They lengthen their furrows. Yahweh is righteous. He has cut up the cords of the wicked. Let all who hate Zion be put to shame and turn backward. Let them be like grass upon the rooftops, which dries up before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves the fold of his garments. And those who pass by will not say, the blessing of Yahweh be upon you. We bless you in the name of Yahweh. You can take your seats. I let you all know last week what today's sermon would be about. We are going to consider the different ways we are called to suffer as members of Israel, the suffering body. We will do that, but first I want to do a little bit more work in interpreting this text. God's word is rich, it is deep, and its application is broad and all-encompassing to all of life. And our meditation today will show us again how this is the case. Even though we've considered most of the details of the psalm, there is a big application, and one could argue the main application that we haven't touched on yet, and that is how the psalm applies to the life of Christ. It shouldn't be surprising or considered novel to say that this psalm applies to Christ, right? His name doesn't need to be mentioned in there for it to be about him. Remember on the road to Emmaus, Jesus Jesus explained to the two men he was walking with shortly after his resurrection that everything written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. This being the case, the Psalms, in a general way at least, must be fulfilled in Christ somehow, so it is right to be looking for fulfillments in Christ from our Psalm today. And I'm sure that you will see the connection between Christ and the psalm is pretty easy to make. And there is a ton of theology packed into this connection. So let's establish that now. Our psalm identifies Israel as a suffering people. And we know that from this suffering people came the suffering servant spoken of in Isaiah 53. We're going to spend a fair bit of time considering this section of scripture today. Throughout the prophets, Israel collectively are called Yahweh's servant. Israel, my servant, is a common way to refer to God's people, a common way that God refers to his people. And from this servant people came a servant, singular, one who would suffer as the body did, but would be faithful in his sufferings. Israel were not faithful in their sufferings. Many times they fell into idolatry and grumbled. But Christ would be the faithful suffering servant, and some people have put it, the true Israel, or the faithful Israel. Consider Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 14, and notice the relationship between the covenant people and this servant to come. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were appalled at you, my people, just as many were appalled at Israel, his people, so his appearance 
was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Isaiah connects the appalling appearance of Israel due to their sufferings to the appearance of Christ. He says that they and the servant to come will be similar in this way. He points out that in the same way that the people were appalled by Israel in Old Testament times, they would be appalled by the suffering servant when he comes. Now coming back to our psalm, it describes the sufferings of Israel with one graphic image. And we've considered that in, at some length in previous weeks. Israel had their backs plowed. They were plowed so that they had long furrows. Let's ask this question. Did Christ, the suffering servant, ever have his back plowed? Wasn't it the case that he almost literally had his back plowed? They certainly made deep furrows in his back. Matthew 27, 26 says, Then he released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, I'm not sure how to say that word, scourged, scourged, he delivered him over to be crucified. Jesus' back was scourged. This scourging, many of you will know, especially if you have seen the movie Passion of the Christ, was a whipping that dug into the flesh. It left long flesh wounds. It was a terribly brutal Roman practice that would leave a back destroyed. Christ suffered tremendously through this scourging, and this experience could quite easily be compared to plowing. The scourging of Christ was not just an incidental detail that was included in the gospel narrative only because it happened. I believe it was crucially connected to the fulfillment of our psalm today. And in it, God intended to carry the potent symbolism of plowing and the connected idea of future fruitfulness. In Christ's scourging, we should see preparation for greater fruitfulness, plowing. Let me show you why I believe we shouldn't take the scourging of Christ as an incidental detail, that it has a deeper symbolic meaning. When Christ predicted his own sufferings, he said this in Matthew 20, verse 19, and they will deliver him, the son of man, over to the Gentiles to one, mock, and two, flog, and three, crucify him, and on the third day will be raised up. Of all the things that would happen to Christ through the Gentiles, he included these three things in his prediction, that he would be mocked, flogged, and crucified. I think that the inclusion of flogging here speaks to something of its importance. Of all the things that would take place, he mentioned his flogging or scourging as a key thing. It was key to his sufferings and his redemptive purposes. It was also through this scourging that he became an appalling sight to the peoples. His appearance was marred, as Isaiah 52 predicted, as the suffering servant of Israel. I'm sure you are all pretty familiar with how Isaiah describes Christ's sufferings in the rest of chapter 53. But let's look at verse 5 and consider how it reinforces some of the things we learned last week. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising of our for our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. The persecutions, the violence of the enemies of God, 
their plowing was used by God to save us. By his wounds, through the plowing of Christ's back, we, people of Redwood, were healed. Praise God. We see here, too, that God has agency over the suffering. This time, God had agency over the suffering of our covenantal head, Jesus Christ. He was smitten by God and afflicted. And in verse 10, it says, Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Yahweh was pleased. The Romans and Jewish leaders did the plowing, but God had agency over it. Suffering was granted to Christ by God. And more than this, suffering was granted to Christ for our sake, just as suffering is granted to us, the people of Israel, for Christ's sake. Remember, we saw this last week in Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. This, again, is a covenantal reality and speaks to the kind of union we have with Christ. The head and the body of the covenant are connected in such a way that they suffer together and in some sense, it is for the sake of each other. What am I saying here? How could we suffer for Christ's sake? Is Christ lacking anything? Were his sufferings incomplete? Well, no, if we're talking about the sufferings he went through on our behalf in order to bear our sins. Those sufferings were complete. They were sufficient we could not suffer for the sins of another as he did. Christ was and is the only one who could bear this kind of suffering and thereby justify sinners in God's holy courthouse. That being said, consider what Paul said in, in Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and I fill up what is lacking of Christ's afflictions in my flesh on behalf of his body, which is the church, on behalf of his body. What, Paul, what was lacking in Christ's afflictions? Lacking. If we understand what was lacking in Christ's afflictions, we understand something profound about what it, what it is to be a Christian. Christ suffered once for sins, right? The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God but his sufferings go on for his body, the church. They had to go on because more suffering was necessary from his covenant body. It did not stop with the cross. Once atonement was made, the application of the atonement, the atonement had to happen. The, the work of the cross had to be applied through the preaching of God's word to a hostile world. This would bring about more suffering this is the suffering that the ascended Christ is lacking, in a sense, or suffering that is yet to be. Christ continues to suffer covenantally through us. We all know what Jesus said to Paul, uh, to Saul, now Paul, when he was knocked off his donkey on his way to persecuting the church, right? He said, why are you persecuting me, Saul? If you are persecuting the church, you are persecuting Christ even though he is at the right hand of the Father. 
That is because the church is covenantally connected to him. The identification of Christ with his body is comprehensive. The connections of the covenant are profound and weighty. Because we are connected to Christ through invisible covenantal bonds, we need to pay careful attention that we are seeing them with spiritual eyes and living by them in the real world. One reason this matters so much is because much plowing is yet to come. We are Yahweh's servant, Israel, and we must follow the example of our head, the suffering servant, through faithful suffering, not like that of Israel, the Israel of old, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Before we consider what that looks like, let's look at the connection between plowing and fruitfulness also seen in Isaiah 53. Verse 10. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the good pleasure of Yahweh will succeed in his hand. Again, seed. Through his suffering, through his soul making a guilt offering, that is through his death, seed was planted. His death spread seed. But he didn't stay dead. His days were prolonged through the resurrection. And as a result, he would see the fruit of what he planted. It was the good pleasure of Yahweh that his son would see the crop that would come from his seed. He sees the harvest coming in from the right hand of the father. And his harvest is brought in through the work of his body, the church. The full harvest will eventually be the redemption of the whole world. Let's again look at how Isaiah tells us this. He describes the harvest later in the prophecy. He said, Out of the anguish of his soul, out of the suffering servant's soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I, therefore I will divide, divide him a portion with the many, and shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressor. Transgressors. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says Yahweh. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For, this is the reason, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your seed will possess the nations and will resettle the desolate cities. Amen. Amazing. Because of the plowing of Christ, he will see the fruit of worldwide obedience to his lordship. He will possess the nations. Even the desolate places will prosper because of his sufferings. One other potent thing that we can see from history related to our psalm 
is the total disappearance of the gutter grass that persecuted Jesus. God cut off the fruitless branches of Israel, all the Jewish leaders that persecuted Christ and his people through the destruction of Jerusalem. He uprooted those rooftop weeds that had grown on his house. Paraphrasing Psalm 37, it was just a little while, the length of a generation, and the wicked were no more. You can look carefully at their place, and they are not there. And what happened to the wicked Roman Empire that were also responsible for crucifying our Lord? They're gone. The rock cut without hands spoken of in Daniel crashed into the iron feet of that statue, and the whole thing came down. The truth is, many of them became Christians, identifying with the church instead of the pagan Roman culture. And for a long time, the gospel went out from that place where the church's persecution sprung from. This is how God turns things on his head, on its head. This is what plowing, this is what the plowing of the persecutors ends up doing. They think they are bringing down their enemies, but they are sealing their doom, setting a snare for themselves, preparing their enemies for success. They're making preparations for the people of God to take their place. This is the hope of Psalm 37, which we have already considered at length. Here's another verse uh, further down from the section that we read last week, verse 34. Hope for Yahweh and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. The history surrounding Christ's first coming shows us not only how Psalm 37 works out, but that it most definitely does work out as it says it does. History is proof that God is operating according to these principles. In the same way that David could say in Psalm 37, I was young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging for bread. He had seen this with his own eyes. The church of our day, an older church, looking back on the younger church can say, that we have not seen the righteous forsaken. Our suffering body has experienced God's faithfulness and we have seen the wonderful fruit that comes from suffering for righteousness' sake. The meek have inherited much of what the wicked possessed. So how does this apply to us today? How should we live in light of this? How should we be suffering as a church? I want to answer these questions by having us consider the teachings of our Lord in Luke 9, verses 23 to 25. He says there, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So clearly, the death we are being called to here is a daily one, which means it will very rarely be literal death. Very rarely. That happens once. Again, this is a daily death. It must be the kind of dying you do when you live on, for the most part. 
Also, it has to be pointed out that statistically, the percentage of the church that God has called to be martyrs so far is very, very small. And yet, every follower of Christ to this point, every born-again Christian, has lost their life in order to gain it. That is what disciples do. They all lose their lives in order to gain them. They have daily taken up their crosses. So what kind of dying is this? Before I answer this question, I have to say that it has been a really upsetting thing for me over the years to see genuine Christians, average men and women, your plumbers, your builders, your stay-at-home mums, feeling condemned because they don't feel their sacrifices are grand enough. They don't understand the small ways in which they can die each day with their regular lives, so they feel as though they should be doing something more extreme, risking their lives as street preachers or doing evangelism or mission work to some hostile people or some faraway land. But very few are called to that life. Most should stay plumbers. Few have the speaking gifts required for that kind of ministry. Many who do quit their jobs for more spiritual or extreme work often don't belong there. In general, we've thought about the death that is required of us too simplistically and have hamstrung ourselves with our simplicity. So what kind of dying are we called to then? I actually found it pretty hard to sum this up, but the answer is kind of simple. We are called to a spiritual kind of death that offers up our lives daily in obedience to God and everything with a willingness to lose everything we have for Christ. Putting it another way, putting it very biblically, we are called to be living sacrifices. Sacrifices that go on living. In rare cases, this will lead to premature physical death, but under normal circumstances, this dying will actually add to your natural lifespan. For example, children, when you obey your parents, it will often require a kind of dying. Your mum says, empty that rubbish bin. You don't want to empty that rubbish bin, so you have to die to your own will. And what does the scripture say about obeying your parents? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Here is one instance where spiritually dying leads to longer physical life. And many other places in scripture teach us this, particularly through the Proverbs. This kind of living through dying is only made difficult because our flesh is pulling us toward the way of spiritual and physical death. Our flesh wants more from this world by going about everything our own way. But following after the flesh leads to death. Instead, if we die to our flesh, we reap life. We see this in Romans 8.13, which says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This being the case, we need to wake up each morning being ready to die all day long. 
Have you ever thought about your life that way as you kick your legs over the side of the bed? All right, it's time to get up and die. I'm sure you've felt like death at times as the alarm clock breaks your not long enough sleep. That is because it is a kind of death. You're sacrificing sleep so that you can put bread on the table. It is a spiritual dying to self. It's worth considering each day that your whole life is a living sacrifice. It's death by living, as Nate Wilson put it. Faithfulness always requires a sacrifice. Fruitfulness always requires a death of sorts. So we need to go about our lives content with dying a thousand times over each day. When we are walking on the hard and narrow way, the easy and wide way is always just in view. We are always in connection with our flesh. So we need to remember that part of ourselves must be killed, the fleshly part. We need to constantly kill that fleshly desire in us that would love to avoid dying. Faith remembers the words of Christ that if you want to gain your life, gain it, you must die. Lastly, I want to go back to one thing I touched on earlier. We live in a hostile world, a world that is hostile to the truth, and the sufferings of Christ will not be completed until his truth has overcome the hostility of the world. We are called to fill up what is lacking in his sufferings by proclaiming his truth as his body in the earth. This is what Paul did. This is what he was speaking about. All so that Christ would receive the reward of his sufferings on the cross. This is one of the main ways that Israel is called to suffer today. Now we can do that in many ways. I'm going to give three Redwood-specific applications, starting from the easiest and most straightforward to the most difficult. The first way is that we must suffer for the truth in the home. We must proclaim it constantly and with consistency. There will be hostility to the truth in your home at times. Calling out sin or a slipping of standards can be very hard to do, especially if you're not in the habit of doing it. It requires dying to yourself. It might require getting a bit of egg on your face as you fumble through a scriptural case for the change that you're asking for. It might disturb the peace between you and your wife. But Christ died for us, and now he is calling us to die and suffer for his sake, even in small ways. And the home is really the ground level for our suffering. If we can't suffer well there, we won't be suffering well in the public sphere. As a stay-at-home mum, the home will be where you spend the largest part of your life dying. You're sacrificing time that could be spent outside the home, but God loves this kind of feminine dying to self. God loves seeing you giving your life for your children and going through the constant struggle of sharing the truth with them. It's a 24-7 struggle. As fathers, you will have to bear the small suffering of being the party pooper, the sober-minded one, who struggles to lead his wife and children to seriously reflect upon the passage you just read. You will have to be the one who says no to that skirt. 
you will have to be the one who draws unpopular lines. It is a small kind of dying to self, but how many fathers are not taking up this responsibility, taking the path of ease and acceptance, being the cool dad? But fathers are called to come up against some hostility in the home for their family members at times. The flesh is always alive and active in the home. All this being said, if you want a fruitful home, you will need to suffer. That's the principle from the psalm. Adults will need to suffer in order to grow and not be soft and weak. Children will need to suffer in order to grow and not be soft and weak. So, we should not flee from suffering in the home. It would be faithless to do so. God is giving you a bunch of ways to die for the good of you and your household. So embrace it for the sake of fruitfulness. Much more could be said. But the second way that we are to suffer for the truth in a hostile world is by speaking the truth to the lost outside our home. Of course, we are to be doing this. The Great Commission, right? But in doing so, we must die to the hope of holding on to worldly respect. That is why evangelism so often fails. We want to stay friends with the world. 1 Corinthians 1, 18-19 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. We have been given a foolish message to share that causes many eyes to roll. We're calling the world to take up their cross and to die with us. To repent and to turn away from the things that they love doing. It makes sense why we would lose the respect of the world for doing this, right? It is uncomfortable and the flesh wants comfort more than anything else. We have to be ready to let go of people liking us. That needs to die so that we might have the, res- the pleasure of God. More than that, we will be ploughed by experiencing the world's hostility, which increases our ability to be fruitful. It breaks the hard ground in us. And it's the only way to produce the fruit of new converts. It is the only way to see the power of God at work in unbelievers, to share the unpopular truth. So, as a suffering body, we must share the truth with the lost and let the respect of the world die with our proclamation. It is pretty simple. And I think we all understand this, but because it requires our death, we need regular encouragement to do this hard thing. Our flesh does not want to die. Lastly, the church, and particularly its leaders, need to suffer with a public ministry to the wicked powers that rule over us. Like I said, I was going from easiest to hardest. We've considered this many times before. God desires the repentance of the kings also. So their repentance must be sought through the prophetic ministry of pastors and evangelists. This is typically how Christians have been martyred in the past in this sphere. The powerful cannot tolerate those who have no earthly power, attempting to bring them down through the power of their words. So they try to suppress the gospel with the sword of the state. 
well-trained godly men have the ability to destroy the wisdom of the wise and thwart the discernment of the discerning. And this provokes a particularly nasty type of hatred. Even those who are not well-trained, such as Brian Tamaki, brave straight talkers, will provoke the hatred of those in power. If we don't want to see another election like the one we saw last night, this is the ministry that Christian leaders are going to have to take up. This is a realm that Non and I are going to have to wisely engage in. The only way that we will see the fruit that Christ desires in the political realm from the kings, justice in the civil sphere, is if pastors are plowed. It has happened before in the church and it will happen again. It is a post-millennial inevitability. May God give us the strength and the opportunities to have this kind of influence for Christ's sake. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this tough word. We thank you for showing us the principles that are at work in this world. The necessity of plowing because of sin in the world, because of our flesh. Lord, we must be prepared if we're going to be faithful by you through suffering. Lord, we thank you for what you have given us so far to suffer in this life. Lord, may you help us to be always worshipping you and thankful that when you take things away, these are only things that you have first given us. Lord, everything in this life, every good pleasure comes from you. Lord, may we not hold these things as idols, but be ready to give up everything for the sake of you, the one who gave us everything. Lord, be glorified in us. Help us to know how to apply these things. Lord, help us to be bold. Lord, may we see the reward of suffering to be greater than the rewards of ease. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to sing together, um, not the psalm this week, we're going to sing another new song, The Son of God Goes Forth to War. We've sung this together as men at the study. Um, we have, it has four verses, so hopefully you ladies will be able to pick up on the tune by the time we get to the end there. Okay, we're going to sing a cappella. Please stand and sing. The Son of God goes forth to war, a kingly crown to gain. His blood-red banner streams afar, who follows in his train. Who best can drink his cup of woe, triumphant over pain? Who patient bears his cross below, he follows in his train. The modest first whose eagle eye could pierce beyond the grave, who saw his master in the sky and called on him to save. Like him with pardon on his tongue, in midst of mortal pain, he prayed for them that did the wrong, who follows in his train. A glorious band, the chosen few, 
on whom the Spirit came. Twelve valiant saints, their hope they knew, and marked the cross and flame. They met the tyrant's brandished steel, the lion's gory mane. They bowed their necks, the death to feel, who follows in their train. A noble army, men and boys, the matron and the maid, around the Savior's throne rejoice in robes of light arrayed. They climb the steep ancient of him through peril, toil, and pain. O God, to us may grace be given to follow in their train. Amen. You can take your seats.